Zagin, you know what's very hard to do on a podcast? Uh, Chris, I could guess so many things, but I'm going to let you tell me. Breaking news. Breaking news <laughs> is very... And yet, we have breaking news on the Trial Balloon podcast. Will this still be breaking when this drops? No. Tomorrow morning? Okay. No, no, no. But it's <laughs> breaking right now as we speak. Uh, Joe Manchin won't run for re-election in West Virginia in a four-minute video. Manchin said he will be traveling the country and speaking out to see if there's an interest in creating a movement to mobilize the middle and bring Americans together. This means his Senate seat will likely go to a Republican in 2024, and it will raise questions about whether Manchin will run for president as an independent. That's what was written on Political Wire, so let's take those one at a time. Senate seat likely going Republican in 2024. Vegas will not even make odds on that. They're, not even ne- close. No. Solid red. Solid red. There is no one to take the other side of that bet. So is that it? Nothing else to discuss on that, right? Well, truthfully, one of the reasons Manson's not running for re-election is it's not very clear he could win that seat. So that's how red it is. Even Joe Manchin can't win that seat again. And it's not necessarily good for his brand to lose in his home state. But it does raise the question. It was the first question that came to my mind, first question that came to so many people's minds. Will Manchin run for president as an independent? Have the No Labels folks said anything about uh, Manchin's not running? They have not yet. Obviously, Joe Manchin's very close to No Labels. And I would imagine that this travel around the country will probably be under a No Labels banner of some sort to see if he can create some movement. But you know, that groan that you hear is uh, probably Joe Biden and all of his staff uh, at the White House uh, really not looking forward to this. And is that definite that a Manchin run takes more off the Democratic side than the Republican side? And would it matter who the Republican candidate is? So if the Republican candidate is Trump, which certainly looks like it will be, although, um, boy, that uh, Miami debate, that was that was a game changer. I'm sure that just changed the complete trajectory of the Republican uh, nomination process, but we can talk about that in a little bit. Would a mansion take more from A Trump, meaning uh, Republicans who want to be able to vote conservative, want to be able to vote for a, quote, old-fashioned Republican and might go to a mansion, as opposed to, let's say, it is a Nikki Haley or Ron DeSantis, Republicans who are uncomfortable with aspects of Trump maybe find one of those two a little bit more comfortable, and they don't need to look at a mansion, and so therefore he would be more problematic on the Democratic side. Is that is any of that thinking reasonable? It's it's all reasonable. I don't know exactly how it would uh, play out. Obviously, there haven't really been any polls uh, yet to weigh the effects of a Manchin third-party candidacy. But the way that I've looked at a no-labels candidacy, for instance, is that whatever that person's, whatever that nominee's position is on abortion will be decisive. And if, you know, even though abortion is not the only issue in a presidential campaign, I really think that if uh, no labels were to nominate a pro-choice, you know, someone who wanted to protect abortion rights and national law, 
I think that that would be uh, probably bad news for Joe Biden because that's his position. If, on the other hand, you get somebody who's more conservative and wants the states to decide this issue, for instance, they might not be supportive of a national ban, but they might want states to decide abortion. Um, I think that actually could help Joe Biden. So I, I really look to the abortion issue as kind of critical on that no labels candidacy. There's also, you know, the idea that it would be a fusion candidacy and that maybe Joe Manchin's at the top of the ticket and maybe, you know, there's a Republican like Larry Hogan, uh, the former governor of Maryland, who's the vice presidential candidate. You know, I don't know who it would be, but it's really hard to determine what the impact would be uh, of, of Manchin yet without looking at all the other factors. So that segues just a little bit. I don't really want to get off the mansion topic fully and the independent candidate fully, but it does segue a little bit to the next topic I wanted to talk with you about, which is what did we learn on Tuesday? And I, I want to focus in on this abortion question. So the abortion question in Virginia, in Ohio, in Kentucky, state by state, we know what we've been seeing. Roe v. Wade, that was overturned. Dobbs, that case was decided. And so abortion is now being decided state by state. And we know what those results are. And we can talk about what we then learned on Tuesday. But to what extent is it fair to assume that that will, from a Democratic point of view, positively affect a federal election, a presidential election? If, I mean, the, the abortion question is now state by state. And so is it as impactful in determining who people will vote for for president? You just said, well, maybe a national ban. You know, you, you, you listen to Nikki Haley, her whole point of view is you're not going to get a national ban. Like that's, you, that's not going to happen. And that's not what's on the table. And so to what extent does the fact that it is a state by state issue, we're seeing the results of that, but you just put a real emphasis on it in terms of the presidential candidate. Why, given the post-Dobbs ruling? I, there's, a, there's a couple of reasons why I think it's a, it's, it's a big deal in a national presidential race. You know, First of all, I think that the abortion issue is it's Republican extremism on abortion that's the better motivator than the actual Democratic position of protecting abortion rights. I think that what Republicans are doing in each of these states um, and how that's been reflected in the National Party and certainly in the new Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, that that is a very extreme position and that it helps portray Republicans nationally as in a very extreme party. You know, the other thing that's about the abortion issue that's interesting is that for much of our lifetimes, uh, we have watched Democrats try to make abortion rights a voting issue, and it never really worked. That didn't happen until the actual, till the right itself was actually taken away. And now it's become quite a motivating factor. And so that means that Joe Biden in his reelection campaign needs to latch on to that issue. And while he may not be popular, according to the polls himself, that issue could help drive him into the White House. Because what if his simple campaign message was this, reelect me with a Democratic Congress and I'll sign a bill to codify Roe v. Wade into national law. That's what I'll do. That's a promise that I will make. That's pretty powerful. And I think it would be pretty powerful across the country, particularly when juxtaposed by what Republicans are doing when you indeed leave it to the states. There's a lot of ways that you can do that in a presidential campaign and, and truly 
make this a national cause. Uh, but Biden would have to embrace that he would want to codify Roe v. Wade into national law. And all you need to do is give him a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, and reelect him, and it'll be done. And you want to know something, Chris? It probably would be done because the other interesting thing about Joe Manchin and possibly Kirsten Cinema leaving the Senate is that Democrats were to somehow be able to control the Senate after this election, and they're not really favored to do so. So I, I know that it's an uphill climb, but if they were, Manchin and Cinema were the two Democrats uh, most preventing the abolition of the filibuster so that you could actually pass something like a, a national law codifying abortion rights. Yes, that's a really interesting point regarding cinema alongside Manchin. Obviously, losing Manchin, um, losing that Democratic seat certainly appears to hurt the odds of Democrats maintaining control. I, on this uh, abortion and presidential race thing, first of all, l- let me be clear to, to the previous point and, and my question in terms of trying to press you a bit around, is there a possibility that voters could disengage what happens at the state level versus the federal level? There is no doubt, no doubt, no, no one would disagree that Having abortion topics on the ballots, even if it's state referenda, something like that, that that is clearly bringing out Democratic voters. It would clearly help a Democratic presidential candidate. And that's why your point about, well, if the independent candidate also supports abortion rights, then such benefits might not accrue as strongly to Biden. And that, so that's why you said that. So look, I, I, I understand that. It's a really interesting point. I haven't heard that. Has there been discussion? Because that's kind of flipping it a bit. Talk around, instead of protecting against a national ban on abortion, instead going from a abortion rights point of view, going on the offensive and saying, elect me and we will codify the right to an abortion. You're not going to have to worry about it state by state. We're going to deal with it at the national level. Is that something that they've been talking about? Well, yeah, a lot of Democrats are talking about it. It's the question about whether they'd have the votes. It was unclear. I don't know if it was unclear. It, It was unlikely that they had the votes in the Senate to be able to do that with a Democratic Senate. You know, the last because time- Because of the Democrat- lack of filibuster breaking ability. Exactly. So the, there would have to be a cloture vote. The Republicans would not give them the vote. And so th- that bill would just die. But if you were to abolish the filibuster in order to pass a bill, and, and I think that there's some- there's some justification that Democrats could use for changing Senate rules for this. This was a right that women had in this country for more than 40 years that was taken away by the Supreme Court, you know, an unelected branch of government. And so I, I could easily see Democrats justifying this to themselves, but it's also an extremely popular position. The vast majority of Americans uh, want to protect abortion rights. And so, you know, the way I, the way I look at this is that it's not just the Republican position on abortion is an extreme one relative to what American voters believe. And that's why even in red states like Kentucky, even in red states like Ohio, uh, that they can prevail when the issue is, you know, refined to be just abortion. But when we look ahead to the presidential campaign, it's more than just abortion. It's also the extremism of the party itself. And when you look back the various election cycles since Donald Trump came on the scene, the last good election cycle that Republicans had was in 2016. And Donald Trump didn't even win the popular vote in that election. 
But in 2018, it was a blue wave, you know, very much in reaction to the Donald Trump presidency. In 2020, Donald Trump was ousted from office. Um, Democrats also, you know, took control of took control of the Senate unexpectedly with those Georgia races that came after the national election was over. In 2022, the much vaunted red wave never materialized. In 2023, the election just this week, you know, I called it the off-year blue wave election. And, you know, then there's the special election since the Dobbs decision, and Democrats have outperformed dramatically in every single special election since that Supreme Court decision. So I think Democrats are in a position where they can they they can do something bold like promise to codify abortion rights in national law. And because doing so also highlights the fact that the opposition party, the Republicans, are a very extreme party. So I think it would be I think it would be a very, very bold mood for Biden. And and rather than looking for issues, you know, looking for Biden to drive his agenda, let the agenda pull Biden back into office because I think the American voters know what they want when it comes to abortion rights. That's a really great statement because his agenda appears to be more popular than he is. If the New York Times Siena poll is accurate, if the CNN poll from this week is accurate, allegedly Biden is not terribly popular, but his agenda sure seems to be. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's uh, that's very very accurate. I mean, it, the polling of virtually all of his agenda is popular. The problem is is that there are, has been polling that's been done that when voters are asked about specific parts of his agenda, unfortunately for Joe Biden, voters don't know about it, um, and so there has been a real communications problem. And whether that's because Joe Biden himself or his surrogates are not good communicators. Um, that may be part of the problem. But the other part of the problem may be our fragmented media landscape where people are getting their news from all sorts of different places. And some people are just not getting accurate news um, because there isn't that one source of news anymore. There's not Walter Cronkite on CBS telling you, here's what happened in 22 minutes. We just don't have that anymore. And it is more fragmented than it was four years ago, more fragmented than it was eight years ago. And for whatever reason, the Biden team just hasn't been able to communicate the agenda. So maybe the fragment. I, I think there's just no production value. Like you, I, I te- you and I texted earlier this week, and and I, you know, quasi facetiously asked, you know, does does this White House have a cabinet? Like, does Biden have cabinet meetings? Like, I, I was thinking about it, and how many times, uh, you know, did you see the Trump cabinet meetings? And obviously there were the, um, you know, the, the really kind of still laughable ones where everyone went around the table and uh, talked about, you know, how incredible Trump was. But you saw like they produced those cabinet meetings as events. There was production value. And, you know, I read, you know, you and I consume, you know, a ridiculous range of news sources. Yes, I see the Biden agenda accomplishments out there. I read about them. I see articles. So yeah, I'm kind of aware that those things have occurred, but I don't see them produced. I don't, I don't, I, I think it's, a, it, I think there's just a, a dearth of production value. Okay. That's, that's, I, I, that's a fair point, at least so far as nationally. I knew, I know that they 
have made an effort to go around the country and celebrate various infrastructure projects in these local markets. And I do know that that they those events have been produced. It's just that we have not necessarily seen that nationally. And that makes sense. You know, if you're rebuilding a bridge in Kentucky, that's not something that really impacts anybody who lives in the Northeast or on the West Coast. So um, that's true. But, you know, your point is still fair because Donald Trump, pretty much everything about Donald Trump was putting together the show. And, and, and at least, you know, he was known famously known as being on shows like Meet the Press, and then he would want to watch them with the audio off because all he cared about was how he looked on TV and whether or not he was projecting the image he wanted to have. I was reminded of that, that actually this week when Ivanka Trump uh, testified in the civil fraud trial in New York. And as she walked into the courthouse, it was really a stunning thing when she the, the path was clear and she walked in confidently with her hair flowing. It was absolutely an intended moment the way that she walked in like that. And um, she's obviously learned that from her father. And that's not the way you typically see witnesses come into the courtroom. You know, you were just talking a moment ago about the bridge, and in, that was the one, I think the one you were talking about was they were on the Kentucky side, um, Ohio was in the background, and uh, there was funding for that bridge. Is that the one you were talking about? Yes. Yeah. So I remember that. That was produced. I remember the video. I remember seeing it. And you know what? I, where else? I just don't remember. I mean, this infrastructure bill all of the projects, you know, all of the new construction, I, I don't, I don't remember seeing other events like that. Certainly not a, a large number of them, and th- that's that's what I'm talking about. And just the fact that they're local, I don't know. I read a lot of news. I, I check a lot of sources. Uh, you do as well. I know. I just, I think. There's something around the production value. I hadn't thought about it before until you know the, this conversation because the the the, the bifurcated media that you know the, all the different channels. Yeah, of course, you know we're all yeah, but that, that's a slightly different issue. That's why you know that gets to you know it's among the reasons why no one can agree on anything. We all have different news sources. We all have different definitions of the truth. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But video a show of Biden, you know, at a bridge in Kentucky, you know, Cincinnati there, I think it was Cincinnati in the in the background on the other side, you know, bridging two states, bridging the gap, bringing the country together, you know, building bridges. I mean, come on. That was produced and I still remember it because when you know, you just said it and I was like, "Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about." I I think there's a a, a significant lack of production value going on. And sorry, I've been going on a little too long about that. But- no, no, I can't, I, can't disagree, I can't disagree with any of that. I, I, I can't defend the Biden White House's communication strategy. I, I was just trying to point out that it is more difficult than it's been in the past. But still, that's that's not an excuse to not have the right people for that current media environment. And just so. to put the, a really fine point on it, and in terms of communication strategy, because I think what they might argue is, what do you mean? You know, we announce it; it's out there. You know, there are articles on, it, and there. It, so it, it's it's actually the production capability around the communications. It's how they are or are not produced that I'm kind of homing in on. So I, I, I wanted to ask though as well. Did anyone have a worse Tuesday than Youngkin in Virginia? <laughs> yeah, Glenn Youngkin had a pretty bad uh, 
a pretty bad. He had a bad week because not only did he lose the election in Virginia uh, that he had really staked all of his hopes on, and so his his potential late entry into the presidential race went up in smoke as well. But soon thereafter, the uh, federal government announced that they were putting the FBI headquarters in Maryland in not Virginia. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, that's it was yeah, pretty, pretty that. much, pretty much slapping a guy when he's down. So do you know what else it turns out from the race in Virginia? Not only did the uh, house of delegates turn and the Senate, you know, turn from red to blue and the uh, Senate uh, remained blue, you know what else we learned from that race? What's that? Just saying an abortion ban is not a ban doesn't mean <laughs> it's not a ban. Thank goodness American voters are smarter than that, right? Yeah, but it's it's not a ban. I'm sorry, sir. I think it's a ban, and I'm going <laughs> to vote against it. Yeah, I mean, look, that's the most amazing thing about the elections this week is that it was it was an extraordinary night for Democrats. There is absolutely no sugarcoating it for Republicans. It suggests that the political climate uh, for Democrats is not as bad as you might think based upon polling that we've seen. Uh, it suggests when uh, these races are focused on Democratic issues, uh, Democrats win. And it's just part of this pattern of Democratic overperformance from the 2018 midterms to to the present is really striking. And, you know, I, I think anybody, any political strategist would much rather be a Democrat right now than a Republican heading into 2024. So regardless of what how President Biden is polling, regardless of how what people think about his age, uh, there is still the factor that Donald Trump is most likely to be his opponent. And he is, if there's anybody who is more unpopular than Joe Biden, it's probably Donald Trump. And on top of all that, there's this albatross of some of these issues, abortion being the biggest one. So we didn't put out our call for the mailbag, but I did get a text from a friend of mine this week who lives down in the uh, Washington, Virginia area. And he said of Yunkin, he thinks he can be soft on Trump. No such thing. You're either full on MAGA or not. The Republicans who think there is a MAGA middle road are seriously delusional. Do you agree? I 100% agree. 100% agree. There is, there is, you're either a believer or you're not. You're either on his side or you're not. And, and quite frankly, that's the way Donald Trump views it too. And you agree that Youngkin was trying to find a way to, to, to thread that needle and it's just not threadable. Well, he was cute in his election campaign trying to, you know, accept Trumpism. You're, you're right. So he, he kind of did, right, thread that needle to get elected, or at least that was the, the take. No, that was the take. And, and what, he was, what he was really running on at the time was that people were very upset about schools. The big issue in Virginia at the time was, you know, these mandates that they were keeping kids out of schools because of the pandemic and all of that. And, and there was a lot of genuine anger there. And he managed to ride that in without necessarily embracing Donald Trump. He didn't criticize Donald Trump, but he didn't really ask Donald Trump to come endorse him. I think if I recall correctly, I think Trump held a conference call for him in the week before the election. But aside from that, there were no rallies in Virginia that Donald Trump appeared at, uh, none of that. And so he thought he could get away with being cute. But, you know, keep in mind, that was just one election, you know, and uh, Virginia holds its elections at, you know, odd times for, for governor. And, you know, he thought he could do it again. But, you know, the idea of this Orwellian calling uh, uh, an abortion ban, not really a ban. I mean, fortunately, voters didn't really 
see that because I just think the cynicism of that type of politics is just so ridiculous that it doesn't deserve to be rewarded. So it wasn't a surprise that Glenn Youngkin came out finally saying he would not run for president in 2024. Well, and I just want to be clear, given the depth of our friendship and, and the number of years that we've known each other, I mean, if you, like Yonkin, run for governor at some point, yeah. I do, I say, you know, promise you, I'll hold a conference call for you. <laughs> I'll do that. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate that. Yeah, I'll do that. I, I mean, I'm, you know, we'll talk about what else, but I'll do, I'll do a conference call. So uh, according to you and many others, it was uh, a wonderful night for Democrats. It was an off-year blue wave, you wrote. And yet, how did Biden lose young voters so quickly? You wrote earlier this week, uh, the latest New York Times Siena poll is already causing panic among Democrats. Now, that was before the voting on Tuesday, so some of that panic dissipated. But uh, let's talk about the young voters. Uh, it's true that polls a year out aren't very predictive, but there are clear warning signs here. A big one is that Joe Biden barely tops Donald Trump among 18 to 29 year old voters, 47 to 46 percent. That doesn't mean young voters suddenly like Trump. They don't even lean towards Republicans. If you dig into the polls cross tabs, you find that when Trump is matched against an unnamed generic Democrat, young voters break hard for the Democrat, 55% to 34%. That's extraordinary, you wrote. And the reason why you said it was extraordinary, I assume, is because that number drops bigly when Joe Biden is named against Donald Trump, but does not drop so much when it's an unnamed generic Democrat. So why did Biden lose young voters? And did he really lose them? How permanent is that loss? Well, first of all, let's put a huge caveat up that this is just one poll that found this and a subsequent poll actually to this New York Times Siena poll. And that New York Times Siena poll is considered a high quality poll. Um, there was another poll, a CBS uh, News uh, YouGov poll, uh, which found did not find this same thing. It found that young voters were actually uh, picking Biden by a decent margin. It certainly not. Uh, it wasn't tied between Biden and Trump. And so it really raises questions over the perhaps the methodology of these two polls. I mean, one could always be an outlier, that's for sure. But the methodology of the polls, the New York Times Siena poll is a poll that calls people on their phones and asks them a series of questions. The CBS poll was an online poll, so it's reaching people differently and asking them to answer questions online, you know, on their phones or on their computers. And so that's a very different methodology and it came up with very different results. And perhaps that's why it had such disparate findings in terms of young voters. But my point was after that New York Times Santa poll came out last weekend was that is a striking finding. If that is true, then Biden is in trouble. Um, because and Democrats are in trouble generally because Democrats do well when young voters vote. That has been true for many, many, many election cycles, and it's becoming even more true uh, since the Trump era. That the it, if you can get uh, young voters to turn out in greater margins than in the previous elections, Democrats are going to do very well. So that's why I kind of highlighted this finding. That is what the poll found. It was striking. 
but I'm I'm prepared to downplay that and possibly not believe it after I've seen a few other uh, data points. Which raises the question: Do polls know what they're talking about? You <laughs> uh, you got some pushback, I think, from uh, some readers this week. Encouraged you to write a subsequent post titled "The Polls Weren't That Bad." Uh, one point I made, uh, you wrote previously about Tuesday's elections, got some pushback from readers. Everyone loves to argue that polling is broken, but there were really no major surprises in yesterday's races. That's what you had written. And then you said, here's why I wrote that. In Mississippi, the last three polls had Governor Tate Reeves ahead by 1%, 8%, and 11%. Reeves won by 4.5%. In Kentucky, polls showed Bashir ahead from 2% to 8%. He won by 5 In Ohio, the abortion rights ballot question was polled at 58% support. It ended up winning with 57%. You write, there were no surprises. While none of those results were perfect, they're not unreasonable considering the inherent margin of error in polling. We don't know how accurate the polls will be in 2024, but don't dismiss them because you thought the polling this year was off. Are people still complaining about polls? And if they are, is it because we all have 2016 New York Times dial PTSD? <laughs> I think I think there's actually a little bit to that. Uh, there's a little bit to the fact that I think we have New York Times PTSD. I think some of the analysis of these polls is is misleading and triggers Democrats particularly. So when that New York Times Siena poll came out over the weekend, it suggested a dire political environment for Democrats. Um, it would that's the way the poll was portrayed. Uh, now there is a huge caveat. That was a poll that was done one year in advance of the actual presidential race. But fairly, it says that if this election were held today, this is how people would vote. And it found that in these swing states, that voters were much more willing to vote for Donald Trump than many Democrats felt. You know thought that they would. And so it, it created this panic and it created a panicky mood that the environment is so bad. And then people started making all of these uh, justifications for this. And why, why did this happen? Well, it's because Biden's agenda is unpopular. It's the economy is bad. Inflation is terrible. Biden's too old. All of those things keep roaring back. And therefore, the political environment is terrible for Democrats. Well, all of a sudden, just two days later, the elections this week come, and actually it shows that the environment's not so bad for Democrats. So I think that people are kind of mixing a couple of things here. That poll was a bad poll for Biden if the election were held today. And it probably says more about Biden than it does about his agenda, than it does about uh what is going to happen next year? Um, and so there's plenty of time for for this campaign to turn out. There's a reason that we have campaigns. And if you're a Democrat, though, you'd look at that. Biden is busy being president. He's not kind of running around on the campaign trail really at this point. He doesn't have much much opposition in the Democratic primary except for Dean Phillips. And, and you'll remember Marianne Williamson is supposedly still running as well. And so Biden's campaign really hasn't started at this point. Um, meanwhile, on the Republican side, Donald Trump has been running for president. He's holding rallies. There's uh, Republican debates where the other Republicans show up for. Uh, Donald Trump hasn't shown up for them, but he's out there. He's out there actually putting forth his message. 
And there's a lot of things that are going to happen from now until next year when the election happens. For instance, it's my belief that a lot of Donald Trump's legal jeopardy hasn't really been fully priced in on these polls at this point. It's one of those things where we we see Trump get indicted. We we see him in courtrooms. We we see him talk about how unfair this is, and and it's hard to really understand the specific charges at this point, or at least for most Americans, what these specific charges are all about um, until we actually get to the evidence. I mean, you'll recall that when the January six hearings were going on. Each one of those hearings was just a blockbuster with witnesses coming out and telling a story that many Americans hadn't heard. I suspect the same is going to be true when these court cases begin early next year. And and these are not these are court cases about Donald Trump's crimes, 91 criminal charges that have been filed against him, which will be happening at the same time he's trying to campaign. And so I think that all of that is going to make it a much different political environment for Donald Trump and for Republicans. It's going to remind a lot of voters who might have voted for Trump in 2016, but then voted for Joe Biden in 2020, why they actually voted for Joe Biden in 2020, even if they don't like both guys. Dan Pfeiffer, the former Obama communications chief, he calls them the double haters and that he thinks that's the new soccer moms or NASCAR dads. The swing voter that we have this year is the double haters, those who uh, don't like either Biden or Trump, but are ultimately going to have to hold their nose and vote for one of them. You know, I, I just think that when we get closer to the election and there's a real campaign going on and the Biden camp has focused its efforts on Donald Trump and Donald Trump is trying to fend off, you know, fend off these legal charges. I just think that the the election looks a lot different right then, right, right then. So maybe it doesn't look so good if the election were held right now for Joe Biden, but the election isn't right now. And so Joe Biden has a year to change that. And like you mentioned earlier, it's about some of these production qualities on their communications. They have at least another year to actually do better on that. Well, where can they ever find a uh, producer in the next uh, year? Who knows? Uh, two thoughts um, on what you were just saying. One is uh, the challenge that Trump will face next year when he's simultaneously dealing with uh, a bunch of cases and court appearances um, and trying to campaign. Um, I'm not sure that he sees the difference between those two. I think that uh, court appearances are um, no different in some in some respects than rallies. And uh, so he, he might be, in his mind, he might be doing both at the same time, both appearing in court and, uh, and campaigning. And number two, this whole thought that the polls occurred today, but the election doesn't happen until next year, um, made me think about the uh, Charlie Sykes tweet that you texted me a couple of days ago, his radical thought actual election results are greater than polls. Well, you know, that's what they always say. The best poll is actually election day. So, Well, we had another one and we are now officially one year out. It's going to be fun. Talk to you next week, Tegan. See you later, Chris.